what was your life like before Christ? Like what led you to Christ specifically? What was your journey? So uh, I was an atheist uh, basically all my life, looked at the evidence for the resurrection and concluded that that's the truth. You're, you're the reason why we do this. Like you're yeah. the guy we're doing this for. And, it's, and it blesses me tremendously to hear about the impact it's having in your life. Mario is a teen in Belgium who not too long ago came to Jesus Christ, partly because of the work of not only my ministry online, but David Wood and uh, What Do You Mean, John McRae's ministry and Capturing Christianity, Cameron Bertuzzi's ministry. And the impact these things had in his life is evident. Now what he's done is he's written a paper defending the resurrection of Christ for his classroom. His teacher has critiqued that paper and now he's interviewing me to go over the details of the resurrection, the evidence for the resurrection, as well as answer his teacher's critiques of that paper, of that evidence. And we also, at the very end, to get into some chatting, get, get into some details about uh, Mario and what his story has been like and where he's at now. I hope that this is a blessing to you, and I hope it encourages everybody out there in not only the evidential factualness of the Christian faith, but in the fact that like anybody can learn this stuff and share it with others, but to also remember there's uh, other spiritual things going on. Evidence is needed, but it's a heart issue that ultimately we have to overcome when we turn our lives over to Christ. Yeah, go ahead and take over, man. It's all yours. You're running the show. So, yeah, um, I'll just get right into it. So, uh, for uh, the case, we've got all of these different arguments and evidences. But what, according to you, is like the best argument, or the argument that stands out? Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, the best argument, like for the resurrection of Christ, I think the, the thing I want people to realize when they, when they talk about this issue is, is that the resurrection of Christ is like a historical claim. We're making a claim about history. It's not just like a, a spiritual claim. Sometimes people use that word. It's like a, a squishy kind of term. Uh, we, we mean there's like a historical claim and that there's a lot of evidence to support it. And in some ways, the best argument is depend on, depending on how much time you have with somebody. If you have five minutes, then you've, you're going to give a very shortened argument. But basically, um, the way I like to approach it is by talking about a bunch of pieces of evidence that scholars agree with, like the consensus of scholars agree with over 90% agreement, like 99%, 98% agreement among scholars. That includes atheist scholars, agnostic scholars. When historians of every stripe say, this is a historical fact, we can trust that this happened. I want to gather those facts and pull them together to say they're all pointing to the resurrection of Christ, just like the way you would look at a crime scene and look at DNA and video evidence and testimony, and you'd put it all together to say, this person is guilty. I want to say Jesus is guilty of having resurrected from the dead <laughs> in this case. And so um, we would look at these things as like historical bedrock. The The maximal case or the, a larger case would involve many, many, many hours, but I'm going to give you a large-ish summary of things. So let me go through some facts. I've done this before in debate uh, with with uh, atheist Matt Dillahunty. Me and him did a debate on the topic. And the first one is that Jesus did, in fact, die by Roman crucifixion. This is not even debated amongst historians. On the internet, there's like a there's like Jesus mythicism, just like there are flat earth things on online. But there's no there's nothing substantial to it. Um, even atheist scholars like an atheist Gerd Ludemann says that Jesus's death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Uh, Jewish scholar Geza Vermes says the passion of Jesus is part of history. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who has written a number of books to really dismantle Christian belief, even, even he would say that Jesus's crucifixion by Pontius Pilate was one of the most certain facts of history. So there's like a strong confidence that Jesus died. Like, why is that significant? Because later on, someone's going to say, well, maybe he only almost died. Maybe he, maybe he, you know, fainted and came back later and they thought he resurrected. But, but one of the most certain facts of history seems to refute that. The second one is that soon after the death of Jesus, his disciples were discouraged. They were bereaved. They were despondent and they totally lost hope, right? They were fleeing the embarrassing content in the gospels about Peter betraying, denying Christ, about everybody departing from him. The fact that women are the ones that, that see the tomb being, being, uh, Jesus being placed in the tomb, a, a Sadducee puts Jesus in the tomb. His disciples are nowhere to be seen. This is considered to be, by consensus of scholars, for real. In other words, they're in no state to invent and make up lies. They really are discouraged. They've quit. They've given up. Peter goes back to fishing, you know. 
The third fact is that Jesus was buried most likely in a private tomb. Now, this is probably, we'll talk more about this in a minute, but this is probably the, the, the lowest number of scholars in agreement on this particular fact, but it's still a majority. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it, it seems extremely likely that Jesus was buried and he was put into a private tomb. I've never heard a good argument against it, to be honest, and I don't think there is one. Um, the fourth fact, and you're just going to put all these facts together and say, here's a crime scene. Let's say, what, what does this point to? Jesus's tomb was found empty soon after his internment. So Jesus, and this is again, 66 to 75% of scholars across all stripes, atheist, agnostic, they're going to be agreeing with this fact. So we're in the majority of scholarship. I'm not, there's no kooky theories going on here. This is, this is solid stuff. Uh, his tomb was found empty soon after his internment. This, this means that this isn't purely something someone's imagining. This couldn't just be a hallucination moment. There's like something tangible that happened to the body of Christ. And we have to explain that. This is a piece of history that must be explained. The fifth thing I'll mention is the disciples had individual and group experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Christ. Now this, when people hear this, they're like, come on, scholars don't say that, right? Like they don't really say that. Well, here's Gerd Ludemann. He's an atheist and he's one of the leading critics of the resurrection. He says, and I quote, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus's death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. He doesn't say that it was Jesus bodily there. What, what he's saying is they had something that happened to them. We can historically put the data together and say something definitely happened. These guys really believed they saw Jesus alive from the dead. This means that it's not a conspiracy. Something caused the disciples to think Jesus really rose, and it, and it was specifically individual and group appearances of Christ that they all thought they experienced. Paula Fredrickson, who is not a Christian, right, this historian, she says um, that the disciples' conviction that they had seen the risen Christ is part of historical bedrock, quote, facts known past doubting. There's just no reason to doubt this at all. Mike Lycona, who is one of the premier Jesus historians in the world right now, really devoted his, his scholarly life to the topic. He says, this conclusion is granted by a nearly unanimous consensus of modern scholars and may therefore be added to our historical bedrock. We're talking like 99% now of, of scholars of all stripes that say that the disciples had something happen to them where there were individual and group experiences they thought were actual appearances of the risen Christ. This is, to me, this is super profound. And it's going to it's gonna um, eliminate a lot of alternate theories to the resurrection. Like historically something happened here, guys. And it looks a lot like Jesus rose from the dead. But we're only halfway through, so let's keep going. Due to the experiences these guys had, these, these appearances of Jesus, or at least apparent appearances, the disciples' lives were totally transformed. They went from fleeing right? And running and hiding to being willing to die for the very belief that they didn't believe earlier, right? Like they believed he died. They thought their hope was gone. And now they are willing to die. And this, a strong case can be made for the persecution that they endured. And what's really ironic is it's super hard to put together history from stuff that's like 2000 years ago. Okay. Typically this is really hard for most things that happened 2000 years ago. We have zero evidence. But with Jesus, there's this mountain of evidence. We have tons of evidence from Christian sources, non-Christian sources, archaeology. We have all kinds of support to try to help us piece together what happened. And one of those things is that the disciples were being persecuted and harmed and threatened and that they were willing to suffer for the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And our key witnesses, our key witnesses are Peter, James, and Paul. These are like the three key witnesses in the resurrection case. And what's interesting is they're the ones we have the most evidence for as far as persecution. We have the most strong historical support for their suffering. And they're also the best, most important witnesses to the resurrection. So um, you might just call that a coincidence. I, of course, on the other side of faith, I, I see this as God's providence in history. He wants to help us out to see the truth. Um, so what we would say here is the, the whole point of them suffering, who cares that they suffered? Well, what it means is that they probably meant what they were saying. Right, that they were they were sincere. Whether they were right or not, they were at least sincere. There was a genuineness in their belief. Like Paul really believed Jesus had risen from the dead. And number seven, the apostolic proclamation of the resurrection, right? These guys saying Jesus rose, it began very early when the church was in its infancy. Uh, Bart Ehrman suggests that it was within one to two years, right? And 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 historically, realistically, you should say this happened three days later is when it happened. Immediately they started saying, He's risen, he's risen. 
this earliness, it destroys the idea that Jesus's resurrection was caused by legendary development over time. That, there, that even if you thought the Gospels and the Bible had a bunch of legendary stuff in it, this wouldn't be legendary, right? This piece of it wouldn't be. The resurrection of Christ was, was the thing that led to all that we see in Christianity. Christianity didn't lead to it. It's not myth. It's not legendary development. Whatever happened, it wasn't that. And then number eight, the disciples' public testimony and their preaching of the resurrection, them telling everyone Jesus rose, it took place in Jerusalem. Right, and originally happening in the in that very city where Jesus was crucified and buried shortly before. Why is that significant? Because if this had been a fabricated story, you would expect it to be told elsewhere. Right? It's it's easy for a traveler to come and tell stories about a faraway land and make up stuff, and nobody knows if he's telling the truth. But if you come to like where I live in Southern California, and you come to Long Beach, and you tell me some fanciful story about something that happened in my neighborhood. Like, I'm not going to believe you because I am I live here. <laughs> you know? And so it's the same thing with Jerusalem being the epicenter. If it was historical fact, it makes more sense that where it happened, the belief in it would take place. If it was fiction, you would expect it to be made up from a distant location. It was actually, now, it may not be as testable to you and me, but it was very testable to the people of the time. Right? Paul the Apostle, right before he was a, a Christian, he hated Christianity. Why didn't he ever just pull out the body of Christ and say, see, he's dead. We all know it, but uh, that didn't happen because, well, something has to explain why that didn't happen. I think the resurrection of Christ being real explains it. All right, the ninth thing, and this is my longest answer to all your questions. <laughs> this is going to be the longest one. The ninth thing is that the gospel message centered, the gospel, the, the whole heart of Christianity centered on the death and resurrection of Christ. So that the, um, if Jesus wasn't believed to be risen, Christianity never would have started. This was core. This is central. Even today, Christians would say one of the most absolute central things in our entire faith is this idea that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Whereas some other people, their faith is based on sort of like wishful thinking type beliefs, which they can believe that that's fine, but you couldn't test that. You couldn't prove it wrong. But, but Christianity, the bedrock of it was the resurrection of Christ. That means that historically, you can't say Christians propagated the false belief in the resurrection. What you have to say is the belief in the resurrection created Christianity. The, the belief in the resurrection came first. Something happened. And then this sudden incredible rise of Christianity, even though every other messianic movement in the first century or earlier, when, when the, the Messiah figure died, it just dissipated. It, it died too. But not Christianity. That's when it got started. And it, it it makes a lot of sense if it's because Jesus really rose. Number 10, this is this is kind of a random one, but Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worship. Now, early Christian congregations were Jewish. Jews gathered on the Sabbath, Saturday. The fact that they also gathered on Sunday and that a, a, a mixed group of Jews and then eventually Gentiles as well were gathering on Sunday, the first day of the week, it has to be explained by something. And the, the only sort of historical explanation available to us, it seems, is that that's because that's when Jesus rose and they were commemorating that on with a weekly gathering. We call it Resurrection Sunday. Something has to account for this thing in history, this change. Uh, Jews changing the day they gather if you don't know Judaism, <laughs> then you might not realize this is a big deal, right? We're gathering on, on, it doesn't mean they didn't also gather on the Sabbath for other things, but their most holy moment then was this Sunday thing that we're doing. And then number 11, here we get to some really cool stuff. James, the brother of Jesus, he despised Jesus. Like this is historically, these, everything I've shared is all consensus, except for the empty tomb. There's a majority there. We'll talk about that later. But here's consensus, right? James, the brother of Jesus, despised Jesus. He was a skeptic and he became a Christian after Jesus died. Like what made you believe your brother was the Lord, the Messiah, the risen one, when you didn't believe him when he was walking around apparently performing miracles? Um, what caused this radical change with James? He suddenly believes in Jesus. This is a pretty big deal. And this again is, is consensus ideas. I mean, you, do you have any siblings, Mario? Yeah, I have a brother. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> what would it take for you to think that he was the he was the Lord from heaven? <laughs> that he will actually be raised from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, it would take it would take or some pretty crazy miracle. Yeah. Yeah, and if you think well James just wanted to be in on the religious stuff. Well no, they were mocking him when he was when he had his And then after he's crucified when it becomes dangerous to believe in Jesus, that's when James does. 
And it's interesting. Now there's, I'll, I'll raise you, you know, from James, I'll raise you Paul. And the last piece of evidence I'll mention, although we could probably marshal 50 pieces of evidence, but here's 12. The last one is within a few years of the death and possible resurrection of Christ, Paul, right? This guy, Saul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. He's the persecutor of the church. He hates Christianity. He says he wanted to destroy it. He actually over, oversaw the murder of Stephen, one of the first martyrs of the church. This guy hates Christianity with a passion, but he suddenly becomes a Christian. And why does he become a Christian? He says that he, it was because he saw Jesus alive after, the, after his death. This is what Paul says. So he died for that. Like he literally was murdered, killed, not only killed, but he was stoned, he was beaten, he was starved, he was put in prison, years and years of suffering, all because he suddenly believed Jesus had risen from the dead. And, and what we have to ask ourselves is, if we're going to be rational, if we're going to be people who gather evidence, form a hypothesis, and then test it, we have to ask ourselves, what explanation best fits all that evidence? And I think the answer is obvious to me. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. That would be the best explanation. Uh, now, some alternate explanations uh, come up. We could we could talk about those a little bit later, but at least someone could acknowledge, at least hypothetically, if Jesus rose from the dead, it would explain all of those things, right? It would explain, obviously, his death by crucifixion. It would explain the disciples going from discouraged to suddenly having confidence in Christ. It would go. It would explain the burial in the empty tomb. Empty tomb being explained by a resurrection is pretty sensical. It would explain the appearances by the disciples in individual and group settings. It would explain the um, their willingness to die for that belief when they were not willing to die for Jesus earlier. Right? They fled. They fled. They ran and hid. They didn't. They wouldn't die with him. And then it would explain the apostolic proclamation happening right away at the beginning of Christianity. Christianity didn't lead to the belief in the resurrection, but the belief in the resurrection led to Christianity. Jesus' resurrection would explain that. It would explain the disciples' public testimony and preaching that it took place in Jerusalem and not in faraway lands where they might be more gullible about distant places. No, it, they did it, said it in the hardest place because that was where the evidence was. Jesus had risen. It would explain that the gospel message centers around the resurrection of Christ, that Sunday is the primary gathering day, that James, the brother of Jesus, converted after his death, and that Paul, who hated Christ and hated Christianity, suddenly became its biggest proponent, spreading the gospel all over the place. I think that's a pretty powerful case for the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. It really is. So uh, you you're, you're already said it, but uh, so the empty tomb is regarded by most scholars to be um, the weakest fact. And I think even uh, Dr. Gary Habermas doesn't even use it in his like minimal facts argument. Mm. I'm right. not sure about that, but no, I that's think, true. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you think uh, this is? Well, uh, so. People, what people don't realize about Gary Habermas's argument, uh, Dr. Habermas, he, he's probably the number one guy in the world with G historical Jesus studies. And the reason why he doesn't use it is not because he doesn't think it's true. He thinks it's true. He thinks that there was a tomb, there was a burial, there was an empty tomb. He has a policy that he's operating from, and it's, it's a bridge building policy. The idea is I'll only use things, you know, evidence that has two qualities. A, there's a lot of evidential support, and B, there's also scholarly agreement that's a consensus. So over 90% of scholars. And and he's just so confident, confident that even in that sense with his arm tied behind his back, like only using this tiny bit of, of data where there's lots of evidence and scholarly consensus, that he can still prove the resurrection of Christ. And I think that he, he can. I think that it's effective. It's powerful. Um, unless somebody has alternate reasons for not believing it. People have their different reasons for believing things. But uh, the reason why I like to use the empty tomb is because there's a mountain of evidential support and there isn't a good explanation against it. So like, yes, there isn't scholarly consensus, 90%, but there's tons of evidential support. I can give you several examples today. There's lots of evidential support, but um, but also on the scholarly level, it's grown. Like so back in the 1950s like, or 40s or something, scholarly belief in the empty tomb like people think well scholars what does that mean right well the they're not always the nicest to christian faith scholars and scholarly belief in the empty tomb would have been extremely low like i don't know in the low single percentile or something like that like really really low through all these evidences the reasons why we would suggest that the empty tomb is really historically accurate this has raised scholarly consensus on the empty tomb 
on the burial and the empty tomb to a much higher degree. It's probably in the 70s now. So if you were to like track scholarly progress, it's moving towards towards consensus. I don't know if it'll hit that or not. Scholars do this all the time with things, but it's pretty powerful. More importantly, though, in my opinion, um, if you what I've what I've learned is this: Gary Habermas will will offer his case. Here's consensus. Everyone agrees, and people still don't accept it. And so I don't think consensus is as powerful as he wants it to be <laughs> and that people still like go, well, maybe it's consensus, but I'm still skeptical. And so in other words, if this 90 plus percent agreement isn't doing the job of building a bridge where people are like, okay, I'll grant what everyone agrees on. If they won't do that, you know, professionals who've studied these things, then you may as well bring in additional support from other things, because perhaps what they need is a larger case and not the minimal case. They're both effective for different reasons. Uh, but let me let me talk about the empty tomb. I have a video online that has 14 pieces of evidence to support the empty tomb, and I deal with objections to it as well. And I really did serious research looking at what scholars say about these issues. But I'm going to offer you um, seven pieces of evidence to support the empty tomb. I'll just give you seven. So one is multiple attestation. Um, when scholars are looking at historical data, they, they like when they have independent attestation, like it's written here, oh, and this other guy wrote it here, that helps support that it really happened. They consider it historical pay dirt to have two different sources saying the same thing. Even if they're not in total agreement, even if they partially contradict, if there's like some element that is consistent between the two of them, they consider that to be much more likely historically true. Well, with the, um, the empty tomb, we have at least seven sources. That's pretty significant. We have at least seven sources. So that's multiple attestation. We have early attestation. The empty tomb data, it, it, it definitely traces back to in Jerusalem right at the time when all those things were happening. It, it's empty tomb right away, right away. So early so multiple attestation, early attestation. Number three, we have the lack of legendary development. What that means to historical research is um, when stories grow over time, you see legendary development or they start making stuff up, right? So an example of this is the, um, the, the, the apocryphal gospel called the Gospel of Peter. This is not written by Peter. It's not an apostle. This is like weird Gnostic, like other religions trying to like hijack Christianity for their own purposes, right? And so this Gospel of Peter, they, it's so funny. You should look it up on your own. It's funny to read it. Uh, the Gospel of Peter has at the resurrection of Christ, a gigantic cross, like a huge cross, like way bigger than life, coming out of the tomb, talking. It's a talking pieces of pieces of wood put together, gigantic cross. That's what legendary development looks like. But when we look at the Gospels, it's just very pragmatic. Like it's it's as though they're just writing uh, what happened. Uh, none of those crazy things are in there. So lack of legendary development. We also have embarrassing features. When it comes to the passage about the tomb, we have women witnesses which to them was considered embarrassing in their time. Uh, in fact, we even have early church history records that Christians were mocked because women were witnesses of the empty tomb. Meaning if you're making the story up, you don't, you, you know, you make up the best witnesses you can. So like, again, the gospel of Peter, this fabricated version of Jesus's death and resurrection, they have like the chief priests and all of the leaders are there at the empty tomb to witness the resurrection. Right, because they were embarrassed by the women witnesses, so they made up a fake story. So, in other words, this looks like the real story. We also have a, a Sanhedrin member. Remember, the Sanhedrin are like the bad guys in the Gospels, and Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, he helps bury Jesus. We have Nicodemus; he's a Pharisee, bad guy, right? He helps bury Jesus. The disciples are all fle fleeing and doubting. These are embarrassing features that you don't make up if you're Christians, and those disciples are your heroes. You don't make up these things about them. Number five, we have the use of proper names. This is kind of hard to explain. Um, basically, there's a, a scholar named Richard Bauckham. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he did statistical analysis on the specific names that are used in the Gospels, including the names of the women, the women that were witnesses. And his conclusion is that we have good support that these are real historical events because these names match the frequent Palestinian names that we have in Palestine, in Israel at the time. Uh, why is that significant? Because Mark was probably written from Rome, Mark the first of the Gospels, probably written from Rome. And in Rome, they had different names that were popular for women. So if you were fabricating these people, these ladies were made up, you know, like where I live in Southern California, okay, we have certain names that are popular here, but where you live, 
very different names. If you were to make up your own version of the gospel, you're going to fill in the wrong names if it's a story about Southern California, right? And, and I'm going to fill in the wrong names if it's a story about where you live. Where do you live again? Belgium. Belgium. Yeah. So Belgium. Flanders. Like, yeah. What's, what's a very popular name in Belgium? Uh, uh, oh, um, for a girl, <laughs> for, um, Olivia. Okay. Yeah. Olivia, which That's is not, awesome. not a very common name out here. Yeah. Out where I live in Southern California, a very common name is Maria. Yeah. Melissa. Those are very common names. Yeah. You know, and so when you go with the names in the gospels, it feels like it was, it was really from where it says it was from. Anyway, that it's a really interesting study that Richard Bauckham did. And it's, um, there's, and let me add this. There's nothing like it in ancient writing where people, they take really accurate historical information and add fiction into it. Like we have what we call historical fiction in modern writing that just didn't exist in the first century. Nobody's doing that. So to suggest that, well, it's a clever, they're just trying, Mark's just coming. He's like, what are the names of women in Jerusalem guys? Help me out. I'm making this like, this just doesn't happen back then. So uh, um, a sixth reason to support the empty tomb, um, the, the public knowledge of it. Um, the empty tomb is talked about like everyone knows where it was. And you don't do that when you're making stuff up. And if you're talking about the tomb in Jerusalem near the time, you don't say like, it's right there, guys. Like you don't do that. And so the public knowledge, uh, inventions are more likely to be secrets, right? Where was the tomb? We can't tell you it's secret. It's holy ground or something like that. And fi uh, finally, I'll just offer one more, and that's archaeological verification. Now, this is one I didn't even know a couple years back. Um, and then I was studying to do a debate on the topic, and I dug into the empty tomb stuff a lot, spent a lot of time on it. So Jody Magnus, she's a, a scholar who specializes in archaeology and Jewish archaeology, specifically Jewish burial practices. Okay, <laughs> that sounds exciting. <laughs> and so she has an article that she wrote, a paper she wrote, um, called Ossuaries and the Burial of Jesus and James in the Journal of Biblical Literature. So it's peer-reviewed published uh, article. And she, here's what she says about the description of the tomb. This is unique. This is interesting. She says, and I'll quote, the gospel accounts describing Jesus's removal from the cross and burial accord well with archaeological evidence and with Jewish law. That's the conclusion of her paper. In her paper, she goes through tons of evidence, like there's these different kinds of tombs found in Israel. Only in first century Israel are we are we finding certain kinds of tombs. The kind of tomb Jesus was buried in that's described in the Gospels with a table and then like a rolling stone going over it. Those would be tombs owned by the rich. Well, guess what the Gospels like? Joseph of Arimathea, this rich guy, he owned the tomb. That's archaeological support for the historical veracity of the scriptures. And her, her, her article goes through a number of different things. Um, interestingly enough, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel in, in particular, where supposedly Mark wrote this stuff um, from Rome, you don't have these kinds of tombs. And so how does Mark get the names right and the, and the tomb right and the, the embarrassing features and the early attestation and the multiple attestations? It's there's, so in my video, I have 14 lines of evidence. I've given you seven here. So the question is like, why don't more people believe it then? Like, why is it only like, maybe it's 70%, 68% of scholars. Why aren't there more? I'm going to offer two reasons. Um, scholarly opinion is slow to change, right? Because they're all inheriting what was previously a lot of skepticism about the Bible in general, but about the, about the resurrection in particular. You would get laughed at if you... 50 years ago, literally laughed at if you tried to present a case for the resurrection, which is what Dr. Gary Habermas has done. And he has changed, helped change scholarship on the issue. But here's what one scholar says. G.H. Van Dalen says, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions, but assumptions may have to change in the light of historical facts. I don't know a good argument against the empty tomb. Not a good one. Uh, not that I, I would share it with you because I get excited to talk about those types of things, but I don't know of a good one. It seems to me like there's other reasons why people aren't believing it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do you think that uh, there's enough evidence to be confident that, because um, people will say like extraordinary claims require, require extraordinary evidence. So uh, do you think that it's enough to say it actually happened? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced there is enough. And and I, and I, you might say, well, Mike, you're saying that because you're a Christian. And, and it may actually be more true that 
I'm a Christian because I can say that. <laughs> that actually might be more true. In my own journey of trying to like vet this stuff, um, I didn't know a lot of Christians that were into like evidence and support and fulfilled prophecy and things like that, that to try to prove Christianity true. I didn't really know hardly anybody who was interested, anybody really who was interested in doing that stuff. But it became very important to me personally because I thought, I don't know if I can, um, I don't know if I can maintain my Christian faith if I can't find evidence. I went through just a season where it was just a really rough time spiritually as well as just going through all kinds of doubt. And I was worried. I was nervous. Now, in all honesty, I, 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 now I looked in a bunch of stuff. The, it, you know, Do we have evidence that God exists? What about the accuracy and the reliability of the Bible? What about whether it's changed over time? Uh, what about the ancient manuscripts? Like, I'd studied all those kinds of things from, um, on my own. I wasn't making videos about it. It was just for my own sake. When it came to the resurrection of Christ, this is probably the area I had the highest skepticism. I did not expect much evidence for something that happened 2,000 years ago. I thought that maybe the Bible was just one source, and it's a Christian source, so how can we rely on it? And I was just very naive about the data. When I dug into it and found out how many sources there are, even just in the Bible, that's there's a lot of sources. Just because it's a compilation of documents doesn't mean one person wrote it, right? And so um, there's lots of sources there, but we also have archaeological verification, extra-biblical or non-Christian sources. And I was amazed at the mountain of data. Like, I can't even summarize it for you. Give me three hours and I can't summarize it for you. There's so much data and information to support the resurrection of Christ. It blows my mind how much support there is for it. Now, for those who want to say um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, um, I have a whole video on that. <laughs> and I'm going to suggest that that sounds good at first until you realize a few things. One, it is itself an extraordinary claim, right? Because it's a claim about all claims and all It's a pretty extraordinary claim. And so where's the extraordinary evidence to prove that that claim is true? I, I think that if we're going to be rational people, we have to say claims require sufficient evidence and not use a vague, squirrely, stretchable term like extraordinary. Because you could have a mountain of evidence to support the resurrection and someone could just go, well, that's cute, but I don't know if it's extraordinary enough for me. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? What we should do is say, here's evidence. Let's test our hypotheses against the evidence. Whichever hypothesis w seems to win, seems to fit the evidence the best, that one's probably true. And, and let's avoid the vague dodge language of extraordinary. Yeah. And here as well, because uh, I think a lot of, uh, even a lot of Christians don't even know about the evidence. Because here in Belgium, there are a lot of Catholics. And uh, yeah, about a year ago, I became a Christian. And before that, every Catholic I met, um, if, I, if I'd ask him, why do you believe? Or uh, is there actual, actual evidence for it? They didn't even know. Yeah. So... Even amongst Christians, I think it's yeah that it's yeah I uh, felt yeah I felt pretty alone yeah. when I was looking when I was searching and I try to talk to people about it and I felt like they don't even know what I'm talking about. I'd be like, "Where's the evidence?" Like, oh, the Bible says so, and I'm like, "No, it's not what I asked," you know. And they didn't realize. And so I, I, I first I was tempted to get frustrated with them, but I realized they didn't need it. Maybe maybe they had had these deep personal experiences with God. Uh, maybe they weren't going through the kind of doubt that I was going through, and I shouldn't get mad at them for that. I, so I just found out that like. There are others. They're just they just weren't in my circle who were who had gone through that, and I I, I started looking into the research and found that it was uh, really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So critics will say uh, that the historical Christian sources of the resurrection and in Jesus and, and of Jesus in general are biased because they were written by Christians. So how do you respond to that? Um, first off, that sounds really like it sounds pretty good, but I I kind of want to say it's like it's like someone they're learning how to do addition. And when we're talking, and me and you were talking about calculus over here. And so, and so they're kind of like looking at calculus and going, that's not how addition works. <laughs> we're like, well, yeah. Um, so it sounds a, a bit good, but it's a little bit naive. Um, it would be true if, if, if I was arguing, we should blindly trust whatever people say. Then you would go, well, Mike, what about bias? What if people have ulterior motives? Then I would say, yes. Oh, yeah. Never mind. I'll take it back. So historical analysis and, and the historians, the reason why they have consensus agreement on almost every fact I've given you, uh, the reason why is because they start with the Bible and the texts there as ancient documents, not as the authoritative word of God. Now, I believe it's the authoritative word of God, but when you're trying to prove it true, it seems a little difficult to try to ask people to assume that while you're trying to prove it, right? So... 
in demonstrating the truth of Christianity, we look at it as just historical documents. It's just historical analysis. And with that view, with the view that many of these same scholars who agree that they would they would disagree on various passages of scripture, they would think that didn't happen or that didn't happen, but yet there's still so much evidence to support the resurrection that all the pieces of the puzzle are still in place, even with a critical, critical examination. So we we can't just ignore everybody and say they're biased, right? Like and if we only ignore Christians or believers, like I'm not believing anyone who believed in the resurrection. It, it's like, have you heard yourself? You're, you're, you're actually saying, I want someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection to tell me Jesus rose. What, what, what kind of game is this? It's just a game. It's like we don't care about facts anymore or reality. So yeah, believers can be biased, but non-believers can be biased as well. And if we recognize everyone can have a bias, then we recognize any historical research involves trying to factor in bias, but without realizing, or with, with realizing that doesn't disqualify somebody entirely. Um, you, you have to consider, in fact, here's, a, here's an element of bias that maybe people wouldn't realize uh, on this end of, of, of 2,000 years, right? That back then, there was a strong cultural bias against the resurrection of Christ, even among the Jews. So like Paul the Apostle, their thoughts about the resurrection right? They, they had their culture. They didn't just have the Old Testament. They had their cultural beliefs. They did not believe that the resurrection of anybody was going to happen before the ultimate resurrection where everybody's raised. So the idea that just one guy, Jesus, was raised or the idea that the Messiah was supposed to die, these were offensive ideas to the Jews of the time. So their bias would have kept them fighting against the resurrection. And yet guys like Paul end up preaching the resurrection. And that actually helps build our case. Um, so yeah, we're talking the the bias thing is is important but we, that has been factored in like you know get past the addition phase we can come up to a little higher of, of the of the math here um but even if you were to take just non-christian sources non-christian sources you would still get jesus as a real person he was thought to be a miracle worker he was crucified under Pilate. his disciples were disheartened they believed they saw him rise from the dead and they were willing to suffer for that belief like you could actually get all that from non-christian sources so yeah that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now into the response that my teacher gave me. Um, she said that uh, this evidence is just interpretation. Look at them with modern lenses. We do not know uh, the context of this evidence. In the past, f uh, facts weren't as important as they are today. Um, and they work more around myths and stories, even when writing about history. How would you respond to this? Um, okay, so... I, I, I appreciate the engagement and I don't want to like be, try to be embarrassing or something like that to, to the teacher. These, these responses, it sounds like someone who has not yet considered the evidence, um, because they're responses that seem to be like ignoring all that was just said. And so I know you, you wrote a paper that was defending and trying to bring these evidences together. And it seems to me like these responses don't really pay a lot of attention to that. So let's, let's talk about a few of these individually here. Uh, did they care about facts? Did the people back then care about facts? That is a, a real myth, but it's a modern myth. And so your teacher understandably says, we have to be careful. We don't read them through modern lenses. Well, here's the modern lens you don't want to read into ancient people is that they don't care about facts. Right? Like when the farmers like buys or sells his, his hay or whatever, and he sells it and he sells it for somebody's goat and the person gives him a rat instead of a goat. Do you think that farmer's like, it's okay. I don't care about facts. <laughs> They're pretty upset. They're pretty bothered by it. I mean, you know, Jesus, his resurrection was so important that it was literally true that Paul, the apostle, who's like one of the biggest evangelists of the first century, he says, that if Jesus hasn't really physically risen, then his entire faith is in vain. This is what Paul says. So like, let him talk. Let's, let's not read the, the modern myth is that ancient, here's the lens, right? The modern lens that we read back and we look at ancient people think they didn't care about facts, but that's really not true, right? Paul specifically is like, if it's not factual, then there's no point. We have no hope. There's no point to it at all. Um, another complaint was, do we know the context of the evidence? And the answer here is, because the claim is we don't know, we don't know the context. The answer here is, no, we, we do. We do know the context of the evidence. That's the thing. We have uh, so much homework and hard work has gone into in evaluating and analyzing the different texts of scripture and people trying to figure out like, not just 
this person wrote this, but why did they write it? What was the setting they wrote it in? Um, you know, did it change form over the years? What what are they appealing? Is there is are there hints in the text that they're getting this from certain sources? Like like Luke, who mentions that he interviewed several different sources before he wrote his gospel. Um, he actually opens it as if it's a historical analysis. He tries to write an orderly account, which is a Greek phrase that refers to like something like a historical biographer was gonna was gonna write out. So we know a lot about this. That's the setting of Luke. He's he's trying to give us a historical biography. Mark uses the names of people, it seems, to indicate that he's giving eyewitnesses. He's recording, you know, when he gives Bartimaeus his name, this blind guy, that's because Bartimaeus was probably, likely, still alive at the time to be asked questions by the people who were reading Mark initially when he first wrote it. So yeah, we know the context of the evidence. Uh, the Gospels are some type of history or bi biography. That That is something that scholars didn't used to think, but through great analysis, they have now come to agree that that's the case. It's not myth. Um, has it been examined with, with modern lenses? Yes, that, that's why guys that devote their lives to it have scholarly consensus on most of the facts that I'm sharing with you today. Like this is, uh, the person who's just hearing the evidence, you're new to the game. But this, this scholarly consensus is a long thought out consensus. So it's not new. And so you can go, hold on, I got to catch up. I can't just hand wave it away that easily. I think these objections also seem kind of, and I don't mean this word to be insulting at all. I hope it's not. They seem a little bit naive. Um, they seem like attempts to avoid evidence rather than facing evidence, right? Well, they didn't care about facts. So I can sweep it, everything, everything they say, I can sweep it away. Uh, they, you know, we don't know the context of the evidence. I just, I can sweep it away. We haven't, you know, we modern lenses examining it. We can't really look at it that way. So I sweep it away. But none of those are relevant uh, in all reality. So she also said that uh, people are religious, mostly find comfort and strength in religion and don't necessarily need proof. So uh, how would you respond to this? Um, okay, so it, there's a part of this that might be kind of true. I, I think people in general... Um, there, there's probably a, a class of people, a group of people who feel like they don't need evidence and proof. I'm cool with that. Um, but we're not talking about those people. Are we? We're kind of talking about the people who do want evidence and proof. Um, in my view, if it's not true, then how can I be comforted and strengthened by it? Like, do, how do you feel about being comforted by lies? Mario, do you, do you want to be comforted by lies? No. Definitely like, not. Do you want a girl that, that maybe there's like a pretty girl that you know, and she's like, I, I, I kind of hate you, but I'm going to pretend to like you to make you feel good. Like, that's not going to be a fun experience. <laughs> it's not no. going to be an enjoyable thing. It, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for you. And I think that we all understand it only works if it's true. Um, I find it offensive to think that I should accept comfort and strength from lies. I find it personally offensive. I think it's. I think it feels immoral, and um, not that your teacher's asking me to. I don't think that she's asking anybody to do this. She, she's evaluating the usefulness of truth of truth in religion, and I'm suggesting that religion is its usefulness is a lie if it's not true, and I'm not interested in lies. I'd rather face reality and live that way. Um, this is where again, where Paul was like, "Hey, if Christ isn't risen, we are of all people we're the most pitiful." were the most pitiable of all people because they had given up all to follow Christ. They'd suffered so much for him. If there is no true comfort in him, then this is all just a huge tragedy. And so it's possible, on the other hand, it's possible that non-religious people are taking comfort and strength from the idea that religious people don't have any evidence and they just find it comforting and strengthening to believe what they believe. That might be what's causing the non-religious person comfort and strength. But I'm going to suggest, but it's not true. And so if you do care about having comfort and strength from true beliefs, then I think you should trust in Christ. Yeah. So I'm uh, actually very curious to know your thoughts on the Shroud of Turin. Um, do you think that we can use this as like an extra piece of evidence? Or do you think that it's not authentic at all? So I used to think it was pretty much bogus, um, but I'm also, I, I, I surprised to people here. I'm, I actually lean more skeptical on things. Okay. I usually want to see the proof and then I, I'll champion it till I die, but I want to see the evidence and proof. So I, I, I start more skeptical on things. So the Shroud of Turin from the very beginning, I felt fairly skeptical. I'm like, yeah, we have, you know, this image of Jesus. I'm not really, yeah. 
but there are some really compelling arguments for it. I think the jury's still out on this, to be honest. I don't know that we can build a convincing case. I don't want to hang my faith on the Shroud of Turin, I'll put it that way. But if people are interested, there is a book called, called Raised on the Third Day, Defending the Historicity of the Resurrection of Jesus. That book has a chapter on it on new research on the Shroud of Turin. So the Shroud of Turin has these various elements. Like, for instance, it is real human blood that's on the Shroud. Um, they they can't reproduce the image that's on the shroud through any known means. Like we we just can't figure out how this image came to be there. And there may be may be evidence to suggest that it was some sort of like um, it was it was an image that was transferred onto the shroud in some fashion, which would fit the the Christian evaluation, or at least the Christians who believe the shroud is Jesus is from Jesus. Um, historically, though there was a piece of the shroud evaluated and it dated to far too late to be from the first century. The new chapter in this book argues that the shroud was dated incorrectly. And so the shroud itself is very, very old. It has even gone through some repair. And I, if I remember right, this article suggests that the section was, it was either it was damaged in a fire, which messed up the carbon, which meant the carbon dating was off, or it was that this part was repaired. So there was a patch from the maybe... 800 years ago or something like that. I don't know the date uh, that was attached to complete the thing. Um, in other words, they wanted to retest it in a new section, but the Catholic church currently has control of the shroud. They didn't used to, and they're not really allowing for this to take place. But as people continue requesting it, perhaps we can examine another piece of it. That would be pretty neat. I'd love to add it to my arsenal of evidence. Um, but also if you guys are interested, you could go to shroud.com. They have a bunch of uh, research on that website that you could check out. Because if it, if it really is authentic, like I think it's uh, it would be very helpful to convince people because it's actually something you can touch and yeah and and actual examine it. you can you can uh, examine it. So uh, yeah, if yeah. the Catholic Church allows it, <laughs> that would be that would be great. I mean, and why not? Like, yeah. hey, and if it's not Jesus, then we then we want to know that too, right? Because we don't want to be have anything yeah. unfactual in our yeah. beliefs here. So. Um, I think that would be great. Why, why not let let people examine it? Maybe they're saying, "Well, it's too holy to be examined." And I'm like, "But if you don't know if it's too holy, if you don't know if it's the th if it's real or not." So um, yeah. Jesus allowed Thomas to touch him. Why won't you know? They let us touch that shroud and see if it's real. Anyway, mm -hmm. but um, one of my many complaints about the Pope, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what according to you is the best counter argument, and how do you refute it? Okay, so let me run through a few different counter arguments and why they they're, they're not the best, um, and then I'll then I'll give you the best one if that's cool. So one of the counter arguments is that the apostles hallucinated. This is actually growing in popularity even right now, but that that's because online there are so many Christians out there who have learned the case for the resurrection. They're presenting it that the non-believers, the the atheists who want to push back, many don't care, but some want to push back. They have to have responses, and so the the hallucination idea. Um, that the disciples just hallucinated. Paul and James, they all hallucinated appearances of Jesus. There's a problem with this because the hallucinations, if you take the consensus of scholars, right, if you don't want to fight against the consensus, um, they were multimodal, which means they were, they saw, they heard, and they touched Jesus. Um, this is this is a ridiculously rare kind of hallucination. The, the typical hallucinations are grief-induced. You lost a loved one, but that doesn't apply to Paul, the apostle who hated Jesus. Like, why did he see him and he was blinded? Like, there was physical ramifications from it. Um, hallucinations also, his, you know, there's a lot of research on hallucinations. You can't see it, but I, or maybe you can see, it. I've got a book on hallucinations up there in my bookshelf. There's a ton of research on the topic. And in, in the research, they say um, even grief-induced hallucinations, when you see a loved one after they've passed, it doesn't cause people to think that person's alive again. Like, nobody walks away from that thinking, they're back. They just think, I saw a ghost. But all the disciples, they thought they had really seen Jesus. In fact, the way the story's written in the text, it, it sounds like they were hesitant. Jesus is like, look, it's me. Come and touch me. It's not a ghost. So they had to have, see, they were rational people. They had to have physical verification that what they were looking at was not a hallucination. And uh, we also read in, in the in the book of Acts, Peter has a has a vision. He has a, he, he has a vision and he knows it's a vision. Even when an angel visits Peter, he thinks it's a, a, a vision. Until he realizes, wait, that wasn't a vision. In other words, their default was to think that a, a vision was not real, that it was purely a visionary experience, even if it was from God. So, there, yeah, the hallucination thing doesn't work. Um, the worst part about the hallucination theory is that group hallucinations just don't happen in reality. 
Uh, and so Dr. Gary Sibsey, he, he says the following. He's a doctor who studied this stuff. I've surveyed the professional literature, peer-reviewed journal articles and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. Now, you can give LSD to a whole group of people, but they don't see the same thing. Right? So you could have a group hallucinating, but not hallucinating the same thing. With Jesus, we have group hallucinations. Remember, there were group appearances. That's bedrock. That's that's consensus. Everybody believes that and should believe that. So another alternate theory is that it was all a legend. It was all a legend. It was all made up. This is probably the worst pushback, um, the Jesus mythicist kind of theory. This says that all scholars are wrong. Every scholar is wrong, except for one or two who are mythicists. Everybody's wrong. All the consensus is wrong. Even atheists who don't want to admit that Jesus was real, admit Jesus is real as scholars. And um, yeah, the legend theory is probably the worst, but it's one of the most popular uh, for atheists. Um, then there's the twin theory. Um, that Jesus had a twin. So Jesus died and then his twin showed up and was like, hey, I'm back. And he just like misled people. This doesn't fit the story because we, his scars and his wounds and they touched him, but also... James, the brother of Jesus, came, became converted. He would have known he had another twin. And there's no historical evidence. So this is totally ad hoc. We have all these pieces of evidence supporting the resurrection. Nothing saying that Jesus had a twin. So if you're going to adopt that theory, you're, you're just, it's, it's ad hoc or it's a non-evidenced assumption. Others would say it was a conspiracy. Um, the suffering of the disciples kind of seems to prove that that was wrong. Pro probably, though, the um, um, and then the empty tomb would prove it's wrong. And Paul, the apostle, and, and James, the, all those would prove the conspiracy theory wrong. But the um, the most popular one, and, and probably the best, at least if most effective, is some version of, I simply will never believe in the resurrection no matter what. And I know that sounds really trite. You're like, Mike, how is that a good objection? But you don't put it that way. You say it like this, like David Hume, um, David Hume, who would say something like um, any any miraculous claim is so unlikely that no evidence could ever outweigh the unlikeliness of the claim in the first place. And that sounds smart when you say it like that. But imagine doing this to other things that you don't think you don't want to believe in. Um, <clears throat> any belief that people have landed on the moon is so outrageous that any evidence that people landed on the moon cannot overcome how outrageous it is. You know, you could do this with anything. This is, this is, this is called blind faith. I just believe that Jesus couldn't rise and therefore any evidence that he rose, I reject. That is a blind faith position. There's no evidence to support it. It's just based upon my prior belief that Jesus didn't rise. That's a circular thing. So David Hume, although he's been very popular in the past, brilliant man, actually, he's been <clears throat> roasted by scholars and philosophers since then because this is a completely circular argument. But it's still very popular, especially online. Um, <clears throat> there's another way to do it, though. This is how Bart Ehrman does it. Bart Ehrman, who tells people, uh, he's told his students in the past anyway, don't, don't offer an alternate explanation for the evidence for the resurrection because they will roast you. The Christians will get you on it because there isn't a good alternate explanation. And so he says, he prefers to approach it this way. And he's done this in many debates. He says, here's a rule. Historians are not allowed to use supernatural explanations. Jesus's resurrection is a supernatural explanation. Therefore, no matter what evidence you have, you can't say he rose because that's not the historian's job. Now that, again, that sounds smart, but what seems obvious to me and obvious to a lot of people is that he's assuming you can't say it like this. This is an artificial rule. You can't, no matter the evidence, you can never say he rose. So this is another way to say evidence doesn't. This is to turn a blind eye to the evidence to ignore the resurrection of Christ. In other words, with Airman or David Hume, even if it happened, you can't say it happened. That is not a good way to do life with a rule that says, even if Jesus rose, I won't believe it. That is not a good way to, that's not rational, right? That might be comforting in some sense to somebody, but it's not based on facts. Yeah. So finally, how would you respond to someone who would acknowledge all the facts and um, you would realize that there's a good chance that Jesus, act, that Jesus rose, but just doesn't care about it. And this is actually um, what my brother said to me, like, Mm. Uh, I told him all the evidence and he said, yeah, there's a good chance, but I just don't want to live that way. So how would you respond to someone like that? 
Yeah. <clears throat> I don't think apologetics is going to help that person. Uh, apologetics is the idea of giving evidence and reasons and all that sort of thing. I kind of feel like that person needs preaching, not evidence, and they need life to rebuke them or correct them or open their eyes in some way. Um, there's all kinds of foolish things that we've thought, you know, when I was a kid, if you asked me, um, you know, what if, what if you make a deal, I'll, I'll give you all the candy you want when you're, when you're five, give, give, and I was a big sweet tooth. I still am a big sweet tooth, as you can see from my gummy bears. <laughs> but, um, but if you said, I'll give you all the candy you want when you're five, right? But then when you become an adult, you, um, you, you can never have a car, right? I would have said yes to that because to me, the adult me is so far away. Who cares? Right. I just want all the candy I want right now. Or, or I saw this video of kids where they put them in a room and they give them like a piece of candy or marshmallow or something. And they say, if you don't eat it, when I come back in five minutes, you'll get like two or three marshmallows. And a lot of the kids just ate it because they couldn't handle waiting five minutes. This is a human issue that we know we have. We, we want our pleasure now, no matter what pain it costs later. And this is a preaching issue I'd have for someone like your brother and say, Hey man, I think I care more about your future than you do. Because you're saying, I don't care if it's true. I just want to live my life. You are resisting God's love. You are turning your back on the truth of Christ. And you are storing up pain for yourself in the future. Um, rejecting Jesus is rejecting the forgiveness of your sins from God. You're rejecting relationship with God. Like, like please care as, as much about your life as I do. <laughs> or do you? are you like the kid who's like, I'm just going to eat it now. I don't care what it costs me down the road. And that... Again, this is this is what preaching is for, man. Like they need to be talked to and reached out to to help them wake up and see. And sometimes it's suffering that we go through hard times that we take our life more seriously. You know, everything's fine until something goes wrong. And then you go, what am I doing? How am I living? I know the story of um, the surfer, Bethany Hamilton. She was surfing, kind of living her own life, doing her own thing. And a shark attacked her, actually took off one of her arms. And uh, she was surfing up in Hawaii. And... Um, and she says that lying in the hospital, she suddenly got more serious about life. And that was when she got serious about God. And it really changed her life for the better in, a, in an amazing way. My own life, I had a pretty, I had some pretty unpleasant things going on when I was a child in my childhood. And it was, it was the hardship of life that made me serious about God. So I hope your brother or anyone listening that you can, you can turn to God now because it's, because he's good and he loves you and he's, he's right and sin is real and you need to be forgiven. But if, if you won't, it's not an evidence issue. It's a heart issue. And it, and you might laugh it off. Like, I just want to do my own thing. I want to do my own thing, but really do your own thing here is active rebellion against the truth of Christ that, you know, and that is, that is so sad and so scary and such a, such an offense to the God who loves you and created you. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wish I could change a heart. I can just pray for the person and tell them the truth. Yeah. And my student, uh, my classmates as well, uh, uh, and, and they would say like, yeah, okay, there's a lot of evidence, but uh, I'll just go on and uh, I, their, their life doesn't change or they don't really realize what's at cost. And I told them like, yeah, the gospel, the, you're, you're, uh, you've sinned, um, you're on your way to hell, and uh, but Jesus is the escape, you can uh, be forgiven through him. But it seems like, like I'm someone who really follows the evidence. When I looked at the evidence, I, I, I changed. I became a Christian. But it seems like a lot of people just don't uh, want to follow the evidence. And, mm -hmm. yeah, it's really sad. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when, when, the, when the evidence impacts your life, like it has yours and mine, we have a lot of confidence in the evidence because it, it affects us so much. But there's an element of what your teacher said that was maybe true about people, right? Like, it's more about strength and comfort, right? Than it is evidence. It's like, who cares if it's true? And I would say that, that, um, that doesn't hurt Christianity because Christianity is, is true and does have the evidence, but it might just be touching on a reality with, with human beings in general, which is sometimes it's more about whether we want to believe something than whether something is true and evidence can show you it's true, but it can't make you want and so I think our job as Christians is to show people the goodness of Christ in our lives, to show them the, the, the freedom we've received in Christ. They watch us for years and they see us develop over time and they go, like, I know, I know Mario's got flaws. I know Mike and he's got his issues, but yet I see the, I see God's like actually impacting his life. 
you know, and, and when they watch that, I don't know, I'm hoping that the life we live causes them to want that too. And I know that may or may not really happen. They may hate you more over time because you're, you're reminding them constantly of their rebellion against God. But, um, but man, just be real, be you share the truth and then count on the Holy spirit to actually bring conviction into those people's lives. Uh, sometimes people are a, a work in progress and it's years down the road when they finally show fruit from all the, all the witnessing and sharing and evidence that you share with them. Yeah. So thank you greatly for your time. I really appreciate it. You got it. I hope uh, that God uses it to uh, minister to people and yeah, that people might come to Christ and be saved. Yeah. So, Amen, man. so yeah. thank you, Mario. I appreciate you, uh, you doing what you're doing. And um, let me ask you this, just if you don't mind me asking you about your story a little bit. So what, what was your life like before Christ? Like what led you to Christ specifically? What was your journey? So uh, I was an atheist uh, basically all my life. Um, and uh, about more uh, a year and a half ago, uh, I started questioning like the paranormal, like ghosts and demons. And I heard some interesting stories and I thought like, yeah, okay, Can, uh, it could exist. And then, okay, if ghosts exist, demons exist, maybe God exists. So uh, that all pro that uh, my, that um, those thoughts led me into questions like, does God exist? Uh, if God exists, which religion is true? Is it Islam? Is it Christianity? So uh, yeah, and looked at the evidence for the resurrection and concluded that that's the truth. That's the um, uh, where the evidence leads us to. Um, because when I became a Christian, I was first a Catholic because here in Belgium, again, a lot of Catholics. Um, I uh, like it was a tradition in our family to uh, to be baptized, to be um, do our communion and all of that. But um, I didn't really believe it. Mm -hmm. So when I became a Christian, I went to a Catholic church. But then when I started reading the Bible, I realized like these a lot of extra things um, that man brought into it not biblical so i need to um believe what's in the bible and only what's in the bible so i became a protestant evangelical uh not so long ago i jo joined a church so uh we haven't been able to meet meet in real life because of the pandemic but we're doing online uh, sermons and uh so I, I need to get baptized as well soon i hope when uh covid permits it but yeah. uh yeah. definitely do it man <laughs> that's great yeah so um i'm excited to hear that I, i'm happy to know it but now what were some of the resources that helped you along the way um so uh for god expect for the for the existence of god um william lake craig mm. especially him um some youtube channels you uh capturing christianity um who else? Uh, David Wood's channel, for especially for because I was considering Islam, but when I saw David Wood's videos, it didn't last long. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So uh, and especially your channel for growing as a Christian. Um, yeah, for um, again having good theology, uh, reading the Bible in a in its context. Uh, your your Mark um, series. It's really good as well. Uh, and your Friday Q&As, like, um, I really like it because uh, like, you can't tackle every issue in a 15-minute in a video. Yeah. So if you have, like, a question, you can um, try to get it answered. And uh, I think uh, you answered my question, uh, two questions, I think, yeah. So uh, it's cool. pretty easy if you uh, are quick enough. If you're, it's a good if you're ready to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we do what we can. There's so many, even yeah. every day we get questions in there, but we try to make that time, at least on Fridays, just for yeah. that purpose. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's awesome. Man. I'm going to make sure the other guys know the other, I know the, there's guys from those other channels. I'll make sure that they know. Cause it, you might be like, well, who am I? I'm just like, Mario, <laughs> you're, you're the reason why we do this. Like you're yeah. the guy we're doing this for. And it's, and it blesses me tremendously to hear about the impact it's having in your life. Like this is your why, your why what do you mean has a channel and crap and Christianity has a channel and David Wood and myself do this. It's for you. And so that's exciting to see that. And God's using you now to impact the lives of others around you beyond that long journey of just continuing to follow Jesus and serve him. And, um, and, uh, just 
measure yourself, if I can encourage you with something, measure yourself by your faithfulness to Christ, not by like looking at other people to see how much they respond to you. Because in some of the, it sounds like what you're describing is some of the area around you is kind of like hard ground. Hard ground takes a while to break through, right? It takes time. And God has a much longer vision for our ministries probably than we often do. And so as you're serving and you're trying to help and you're excited about sharing Christ, like you've got your, you've got your, your teacher talking about the resurrection of Christ, trying to wrestle through it. And now your teacher has to sit, to be honest with you, has to sit with these really bad alternate explanations of like, well, they didn't care about facts back then. Like, like that's, what's keeping you from trusting in Christ. Like maybe, maybe, uh, maybe reason will help push that wall down. And then, and then the heart can finally say, okay, I'm going to respond to the gospel and trusting in Jesus. And we, we just want them to know God's love and forgiveness. Um, yeah. And because I, I'm the only one in my family who is a Christian. So it's really hard sometimes because um, when I'm alone, I, I'll pray, I'll read the Bible. I see so much sin and uh, yeah, bad behavior. And it's like really, um, yeah, uh, hard to get through it. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And I have my own issues because for a long for for a, a long time uh, I would doubt was I really saved because I would fail because I'm a teenager and have a lot mm-hmm. of hormones so yeah yep but uh, fully I'm pretty confident now <laughs> yeah yeah and you know pretty what pretty confident I, now so yeah what you're describing is like me growing up I I was the only guy in my home that went to church I get up and go to church alone you know and uh, one time my mom came to church with me after years. And she showed up and on a Sunday morning and somebody there said to her, oh, we were beginning to think Michael didn't have a mom. And I thought, oh, no, like they just embarrassed her so bad. I thought she's never coming back now. But um, anyway, I, I recognize that. And, it, and it's love your, you know, pray for her and ask the Lord to help you have at least some Christian friends who you, you know what I mean? You come mm-hmm. and there's that fellowship with them. And there's that connection with them that's just so great and beautiful. But, um, but yeah, man, just press on, press on, be patient. God's doing a work in your life, and He's doing a work in others through you, and that's exciting. Yep. So thank you so much again for uh, doing this. You got uh, and again, I hope that God will use it. Uh, I pray that God will uh, guide you, and that you might stay biblical as well, and uh, yeah, be real and be. Uh, Seeking for Christ always. Yeah. Amen amen to that. To me, it is the evidence for the empty tomb that just gets underappreciated. Can I put it that way? So I'm going to give you a link right here to my video going through a ton of reasons to believe in the empty tomb, answering objections to the empty tomb, and going through it all in detail. You think you know from this video? Oh, no. There's so much more. So check it out.